This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Thank you so much. What an amazing encouragement to, to all of us during this troubled time. We're always honored when you join us. There are thousands and thousands of churches that are, are doing the same thing, and we are just honored that uh, you joined us for our church today. Today, even though it certainly doesn't seem like it because of the crisis in our world, yet today is the day that we refer to as Palm Sunday. And on this day, nearly 1,990 years ago, between 100,000 and 200,000 people gathered together and laid down their palm branches and placed their outer robes on the road in front of Jesus. And they shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, as he made his way into Jerusalem. They believed that Christ was finally getting ready to set up his earthly throne. You've all heard of, of Palm Sunday. But today is also known as something else besides Palm Sunday. And this is something that the church doesn't emphasize nearly as much. But today is also known as Passion Sunday because it launches us into Passion Week. And the emphasis of Passion Sunday provides a different perspective than Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday emphasizes the celebratory parade, the, the palm branches, the shouting and cheering. But Paul, Passion Sunday tempers that excitement because this parade would end up being nothing more than an, than an early funeral procession. Because five days after this grand parade, Jesus would be dead. And to do justice, we must balance this day and remember that within the excitement of Palm Sunday was also the reality of Passion Sunday that would usher in the events leading to the death of our Savior. Now today, before we do something special, Pastor Jim already alluded to it. Before we partake of communion, maybe the first time you've ever partaken of the Lord's Supper in your home, but for a few moments, we want to look at the topic of the Monday after Palm Sunday. Now, in the New Testament, there seems to be something really special about Sundays. Of course, you have Palm Sunday that we remember today. Then there's the Super Bowl of Christianity, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, we will celebrate that next week. And then Sunday happens to be the day of the week. Have you ever wondered why we gather on Sunday? Well, it's because the first believers met together corporately to worship Jesus on Sunday. And then some would call Sunday the Sabbath. It really isn't. The Sabbath is Saturday. But, but Sunday is a special day because it's to be a day of physical and spiritual renewal. Sunday in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, is also referred to as the Lord's Day. So Sunday throughout history has been a special day. And, and because of that, when we get near Easter, we focus on the great Sunday events. And, and we should. They're foundational to our faith. And, and they've changed the course of history. But once the clock strikes sundown on that first Palm Sunday, and by the way, today we say, well, the clock strikes midnight. But in the New Testament, sundown was considered the end of the day. And so once the clock strikes sundown and, and Palm Sunday ends, 
we tend to forget about the events that took place on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. And then we pick up the Good Friday event of the crucifixion and that takes us up to resurrection Sunday three days later. But today, I want to mainly focus on the events of that Monday after that first Palm Sunday. Now, the events of that Monday took place under a cloud of uncertainty. Even though a couple of, up to a couple of hundred thousand people had just gathered and celebrated whom they thought would be the one to deliver them from Roman rule, yet the atmosphere was very uncertain. Jesus had said some confusing things. He, in somewhat of a cryptic or, or mysterious fashion, he had implied that he would die. So everyone was uneasy. There was a high level of restlessness in the air. People were nervous. In fact, I wonder if it wasn't a lot like what we are feeling today. Our governor, Governor Mike Parson, addressed our state yesterday. And by the way, we really need to be praying for Governor Parson. Governor Parson has been a friend to this community. He has been to our church a good number of times and is friends with a lot of us here. But after much thought and, and, and knowing him, I believe after a good amount of prayer, he issued a stay-at-home order for our state as of tomorrow. And, and by the way... Uh, we need to adhere to this stay-at-home order. Uh, this is for our health. This is for the health of others. And, and so this is not a time to be Mr. Tough Guy or Mrs. Tough Gal. This is a time when we need to understand the severity of this situation. And, and so I would encourage you to follow the stay-at-home order. And he's given us a lot of flexibility, a lot of latitude. We can go the places we need to go. But Let's make sure that we listen to this order. But anyways, I heard his address, and many of you did as well. There was a sense of uneasiness. I heard a, a, a heaviness, just uneasiness in his voice. Uh, and really, if we would just evaluate our, our emotions, you know, we're, we're wondering what will happen to our country. We're, we're wondering what will happen to our families. Will we get the virus? And if we do, will we survive? And should we be fortunate enough to, to not get the virus? There's still fear because of un economic uncertainty. Will we lose our jobs? Will we lose our homes? How will the stimulus bailout package affect us down the road? Will that lead us to inflation off of the charts? There's no doubt that fear is dominating our emotions. And so just try to remember that those same types of emotions were dominating people's lives on this Monday after that first Palm Sunday. So let's pick up our reading amidst this very uncertain time. In our lesson, Mark chapter 11. The Palm Sunday Parade is over. It, it, it's been an amazing day, a little bit confusing. Probably, outwardly, the greatest day ever of support for Jesus. You know, in, in a way, I kind of wonder if it was like our prayer caravan last Wednesday evening. And, and, and if you missed it, th this was such an amazing experience. And not to take long here, but... Monday, I began to feel like that we should just pray as a community, and so began talking with our, our leaders, our, our fire department, and our, and our police department, and trying to run it by them and the route, and so finally, Tuesday afternoon, 
just made the decision to officially go ahead and promote this. And, and I didn't know if we'd have five cars or 10 cars. And I was just blown away. And, you know, as we were led around uh, by, our, uh, by our fire department and, and the police department, as we were led around town, there was a convoy, a caravan nearly two miles long as we drove around Eldorado Springs and just prayed for our community. And uh, just an amazing, amazing day. But in our reading, that amazing day of the parade was over. People were returning to their homes. And let's find out what happened. Mark chapter 11, verse 11. So Jesus came to Jerusalem. He went into the temple. He looked around carefully at everything. So as the crowds are dispersing, Jesus walks the short distance to the temple. And, and he spends a little bit of time looking around. I've tried to imagine what Jesus was looking at. I kind of wondered if he was doing what I do when I come into church early Sunday morning. And, you know, I, I always make myself some coffee first thing. And I got in this morning at about 6 o'clock. Of course, nobody was here. And made myself some coffee. And I believe there will be coffee at the Mary's Supper of the Lamb. And, and, and I just want to make sure that I'm kind of training my taste buds for that moment. And, but, but then I just prayerfully walk around and, and, and I pray and make sure that everything is in order, make sure that my mic is working. And, and so I don't know what, what Jesus was observing, but, but the Bible says that he didn't just kind of glance around quickly. It says he looked carefully at everything there in the temple. Let's continue reading. And then he left because it was late in the afternoon. Then he went out to Bethany with the 12 disciples. Now, Bethany was about two miles from Jerusalem. And, and today, because most of us are couch potatoes, we drive everywhere we go. Two miles would be like a marathon for us, but not for them. You know, I, I do get a little amused at, at, at Americans. We, we don't like to walk. And so when we, whenever we go to the, to the grocery store, when we go to Walmart, or when we come to church, what do we do? We circle around and, and try to get the closest parking places. Um, but, but in our lesson, Jesus and his disciples had a full and tiring Sunday, and tiring Sunday but, but they walked the two miles to Bethany where they would spend the night. Well, the next day, Monday morning, leads us into two very significant events, events that we've all heard of, but most of us have never associated those events with the Monday right after Palm Sunday. Now, as we talk about them, here's what some of you will think initially. You'll think, oh, Jesus was having a bad day. Now, Jesus was just cranky. He woke up on the wrong side of the bed, and he was tired from the events of Palm Sunday and was just kind of grouchy. But you need to understand that these events were not just Jesus having a bad day. Jesus was trying to get across some deep truths. The first Monday event is centered around a fig tree. On that Monday morning after Palm Sunday, after spending the night in Bethany, Jesus and his disciples decide to head the two miles back to Jerusalem. On the way out of town, the Bible says Jesus was hungry. They probably hadn't had breakfast yet. And so let's read about that. The next morning, that's the Monday after Palm Sunday, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus felt hungry. He noticed a fig tree a little way off that was in full leaf. So he went over to see if he could find any figs on it. But there were only leaves because it was too early in the season for fruit. 
Then Jesus said to the tree, may no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say it. Now we're in Mark's gospel, but Matthew's gospel actually records the same event. And and it says that Jesus cursed the fig tree. It withered and died. Now, just for clarification, that doesn't mean that Jesus got mad and said a curse word. That's not the context. That's not what happened. But he, in essence, said, tree from now on, you won't bear any more fruit. Your, your, your fruit-bearing days are finished. And by the way, I've heard, read a little bit where, where some people you know, feel sorry for the tree. It was not very nice of Jesus to just kind of fly off the handle and, and kill that tree. But you know, if, if you're feeling sympathetic for that tree, maybe you ought to save your sympathy for the tree that the Romans killed so they could use it to make a cross upon which Christ would be crucified. But that's another topic for another day. Back to the fig tree. In that part of the world, fig trees usually bore figs twice a year. When I lived in Arkansas as a high schooler, we had some fig trees in our backyard. And they bore figs one season per year. But in Israel, you could count on fig trees producing two crops of figs each year. And on the protected side of the Mount of Olives, where Christ was at that moment, it would not be unusual to have the trees leaf out in the month of March, even though the fruit would probably not fully ripen until maybe late April, early May. But when Jesus arrived at the tree, he looked for figs because the Bible says that the tree was in full leaf, but he found none. It was too early in the season. And the question that comes up is this. Why was Jesus so upset at the fig tree? I mean, the tree was just following the laws of nature that God himself had established. So why did this upset Jesus? Well, for you Bible scholars, the scholarly answer is that this was, a, in a sense, a foretelling and prophecy of what would eventually happen to Jerusalem. But, but instead of the scholarly answer, let me give you some insight as to why I believe Jesus was upset that this tree had not produced fruit. And, and I was just meditating. I was praying over the scripture one day, and it just kind of jumped out at me. One of the reasons that I believe this barren fig tree upset Christ so much is because very possibly what had happened during that Palm Sunday parade was still on his mind. And, and I want you to track with me here. Outwardly, the Palm Sunday parade was fabulous. There were a lot of people lining the streets that day, and and you would think that Jesus would have come out of that Sunday feeling pretty good about things. You know, those days when we have a good Sunday here at our church, and numbers are high, and people are engaged and excited, and the Spirit of the Lord is really evident, I leave the church church building feeling pretty good. And, and you would think that Jesus would have felt pretty good about that Sunday, that the numbers were good, the people were engaged, they were excited. It, it, it appeared to have been a good day in the Lord. But the Palm Sunday parade hadn't left Jesus on a high. And probably the biggest reason was because Jesus looked beyond the Hosannas and, and he looked beyond those shouting his name and, and he looked straight into people's hearts. And when he looked into their hearts, what what he saw troubled him. Because he saw a people who wanted a king to save them from the Romans, but they didn't want a king to save them from their sins. 
He saw people who wanted to be saved politically, but not spiritually. And I believe Jesus was troubled as he understood that that whole Palm Sunday parade was a show. It was superficial. It was hollow. It was meaningless. Which makes me wonder sometimes, would you, would you listen to this here? I, I wonder, as God looks down on our church and other churches across the country, does he ever just start shaking his head and say, well, there's a lot of noise at that church. There's a lot of activity at that church. But it's shallow and hollow and superficial. And as Jesus came upon that fig tree that looked so good, he had to be reminded that that Sunday crowd that looked so good on the outside, but yet on the inside there was no fruit. So from the account of the fig tree, we need to be reminded that God is able to see who we really are. He's able to look past the smile. He looks past the pretending. He knows if there's any unconfessed sin in our hearts. He knows if there's any unforgiveness. He knows. He knows the bad words that you said this past week. He knows if there's phoniness, legalism, hypocrisy, and pride. Well, there's another event that takes place on that same Monday after Palm Sunday, and that was the cleansing of the temple. You also remember this story well, but let's review it in Mark 11, verse 15. When they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the merchants and their customers. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the stalls of those selling doves. And he stopped everyone from bringing in merchandise. He taught them. The scriptures declare, my temple will be called a place of prayer for all nations, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. Now again, this was much more than just Jesus being cranky and having a bad day. Fifty years ago or so, there was a great preacher in the Washington, D.C. area named Peter Marshall, and books have been written about him, movies have been made. He was an articulate man, and let me quote from one of his sermons that describes the scene that we just read. Here's what Peter Marshall says. It's early morning, but already the temple court is a bedlam of activity and noise. Among the tables of the money changers, the cages of doves and the stalls of cattle, people are crowding about, chatting with their friends, selecting a dove for a sacrifice, getting their money from other countries exchanged into the sacred half-shekel of the sanctuary. For those who came from out of town, it was convenient to buy sacrifices on the spot instead of having to bring live animals from a distance. But the problem was that temple worship had become temple huckstering. Shrill voices, arguing, bickering, swearing angrily. The metallic tinkle of coins as they dropped into the money boxes on the table all the signs of greed can be heard just outside the holy place. There's no serenity, no peace, no spirit of worship. It's almost impossible to pray because of the commotion. 
But suddenly there's a lull in the confusion. Startled at the sudden quiet, we look up to find a strange yet hauntingly familiar figure standing between two of the gigantic stone columns. It's Jesus. His face is burning with intensity. His face is magnificent in its wrath. And Peter Marshall continues with this word picture. He says, as Jesus steps forward with a resolution and firmness born of the terrible conviction within him, there's a look in his eyes. His lips are drawn into a thin line. Stooping down, he picks up some binding cords which the merchants have discarded. He quickly knots them into a whip. There's something in his attitude, in his eyes, in his face, in that ominous silence in which he stands watching, which brings about a feeling of uneasiness. And then the full fury of his wrath breaks. In a few long strides, he is across the courtyard, picking up the boxes filled with money. Scornfully and deliberately, he empties them on the stone floor, the coins spill with a clatter, rolling off in a hundred different directions. Tables go crashing to the floor. The money changers, in their greed, frantically rush to gather up their coins, screaming in protest as the man with the whip stands over them. And then he drives out the terror-stricken cattle. The muscles of his arms stand out like cords. Lights dart from his eyes. Not a hand is raised against him. Even the temple guards only stand and watch helplessly. His magnificent figure dominates the scene. His voice rings out, echoing among the stone pillars, and sounds like the voice of doom, like the voice of God himself saying, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it into a den of thieves. Now, this is one of the few times where we see Jesus angry. In fact, he was furious. But why? What made him so angry? Well, the Jewish temple where this incident occurred was a marvelous structure. It soared roughly 15 stories above the Kidron Valley to the east. It was nearly 500 yards long and 400 yards wide. The outer court of the temple was nearly the size of 48 college basketball courts. The temple had basically become a shopping mall. Pins of sheep, sheep, goats, doves, and other animals for sacrifice were everywhere. And in one sense, these merchants provided a needed service and offered convenience to the worshipers, as we said. But what had started out as a convenience had turned, in, turned into a money-making scam. Money, cha money changers would charge high fees to exchange shekels for pagan coins. Likewise, those who sold sacrificial animals would mark up their prices too. And just in case someone got the wise idea to set up a competing market elsewhere and undercut the temple sellers, the priests had that covered too. Before an animal could be sacrificed, it had to pass a temple inspection. And the priest would simply reject any animal that didn't come from one of their licensed merchants. The whole system was corrupt. But there stands Jesus. He's angry. 
these merchants and politicians and spiritual leaders had taken that what was intended to be pure and holy and they had polluted it. Temple worship had become hollow and empty. And I've thought a lot about this over the past few days and you know, I certainly don't want to put everybody in this category, but it appears that in, in, in a lot of instances, Christianity in America has become very commercialized and superficial. It seems that many times the only evidence of Christianity in our lives is found in our symbols. Let me just explain this quickly. Today there are more Christian symbols than ever before. From the scripture bracelets that we wear around our wrists to angel pendants to cross tattoos. Crosses around our necks or in our homes. I was in someone's home. Nobody would have considered them to be godly nor they never darkened the church doors, any church. Yet as I walked in, I was so amazed, actually flabbergasted. Uh, this person had two to three dozen crosses hanging on their walls. And then one father who never took his son to church was beaming with pride as he told me, you know, my son put a decal of a cross on his car. And, And I'm not against that. There can be some good in it. But sometimes I fear that just because we're wearing a cross or we have one hanging in our home or or we happen to have one of those bracelets around our our wrist with a scripture reference that we begin to think that we're really taking a stand for God. And I know that some of those things can be good and, and, and healthy reminders, but I sometimes worry that those symbols are about the only substance we have in our lives. And and we've replaced Christ with symbols. Which is essentially what the Pharisees had done. Aside from their hollow and symbolic temple worship, they wore phylacteries, which were little boxes that contained scripture. They had that one box that they would put around their forehead, and then they had another one that they would put on their arm, and kind of like what we would do with our little scripture wristbands. And initially, they started out wearing them as good and healthy reminders of God's word. One on the forehead was to make sure that God was prominent in their thought life. The one on their arm was to make sure that their activities were God-honoring. That was good, but what happened is that eventually those symbols became a substitute for God himself. And scripture said their hearts were so far from God. So, if you're into crosses, wristbands, Pendants, Christian decals on your car, that's okay. But just remember that those Christian symbols around your wrist, neck, on your walls, on your car, do not make you more godly. They cannot be a substitute for the real thing, which is Jesus Christ. Back in the Old Testament, some of you would remember that when the plague broke out with the Israelites and God told Moses to put up a bronze snake and the people could look at that and be healed and over the next 300 years, that snake, that bronze snake that God had instructed Moses to put up, that snake became a God to the people. 
And so the Bible says in the, in, in the book of 2 Kings that Hezekiah, he realized that it had become a god, it had become a distraction. And he took that bronze snake and he smashed it to smithereens because it had taken the place of God, Jehovah. And so when Jesus walked into that temple and saw how commercialized and hollow their worship had become, it angered him. And these two illustrations, the barren fig tree, the cleansing of the temple, on that Monday after Palm Sunday, serve as reminders that God wants substance more than symbols. He wants a pure heart more than a wristband or a cross on a wall. He wants people who truly seek and worship Him. He wants more than just a lot of activity and tradition. And so before we partake of communion, maybe it would be appropriate for us to ask God to search our hearts. And let's ask ourselves these questions. Are, are we like that fig tree? We, we put on a pretty good front, but have very little spiritual substance on the inside? Is our walk with God based on tradition and symbols? Or do we really have the Spirit of God living and working inside of us? Wherever you are, could you just kind of bring the kids around you? And could we just have a time of soul searching, a time of prayer? And let's just ask God to search us right now. Lord Jesus, I, I want to just come to you and Father I pray that right now you would just search us Lord if there is barrenness Father if there is just hollow if our relationship with you is empty if it's all superficial I pray that Lord Jesus right now you would begin to just cleanse us Lord, we don't, want to be, we don't want to be fake. Lord, forgive us for those times that we've just made serving you all about tradition or symbols and without much reality. Father, I pray that you would search our hearts for those that maybe said some things they shouldn't have said this past week. For those that maybe their morality wasn't up to the biblical standard of holiness. Their ethics were far from being what God intended for us. Lord, for those who have had bad attitudes, who have had an attitude of criticism. and Lord, for those that maybe haven't taken time to spend with you, they haven't worshipped you in and, and your word and prayer time. Father, I just pray that you would begin to settle down upon us and, and search us and forgive us. 
Lord, would you forgive us for those bad words that we've said and give us the grace to not say them again. Father, for those things that we've done, would you forgive us? Those things that we've thought that were unholy, that were impure, would you forgive us? God, as we enter this time of communion, I pray that even though we're not here to be able to partake together, I pray that this would be one of the most meaningful communion experiences that we've ever had. God, help us to understand understand what the bread represents. Lord, help us to understand that, Father, the bread represents the body of Jesus that was broken, bruised and broken. God, help us to understand that. Lord, as we partake of the juice, help us to understand that the blood of Jesus Christ is what cleanses us from all sin. Lord, just give us a new awareness of that. And so, Father, just individually, there will be some that are just singles that are partaking there alone, nobody else with them. And would you help them not to feel alone, though, because you're with them? For those families, maybe couples, senior adults, maybe young families with a bunch of kids. And so, God, I just pray that everyone right now, that this would be so meaningful. So, Lord, bless these elements and bless your word as we read. God, just settle down upon us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took a loaf of bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and you, sealed by the shedding of my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup. You're announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So if anyone eats this bread or drinks this cup unworthily, that person is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. That's why you should examine yourself. That's why we spent some time praying. Examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread and drink the cup unworthily, not honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That's why many of you are weak and sick and some have even died. So this morning, for those of you who have prepared the elements, and if you didn't have an opportunity to prepare the elements you can at least partake in your spirit. But for the next 60 seconds or so, here's what I'd like for you to do. I'd like for you to just spend some time. If you're alone, just spend it with God. If you're with your family, maybe you can just really spend this time just seeking God together. And 
don't partake of the elements yet. I'd like for all of us to do it at the same time. So I'm going to give you just the next minute or so for you to spend this time with the Lord. there in your homes would you please take the bread that you prepared and remember what this represents this bread represents the body of Jesus Christ will you please take the bread and let's partake together right now Would you please take the juice that you prepared, recognizing that this is symbolic of the blood of Jesus Christ. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Shall we all partake together right now? Father, thank you again for your presence, your amazing presence. Thank you for the opportunity to partake with our family scattered out in different places. Thank you for the salvation you give us. In Jesus' name, amen. I leave you with an exhortation from the book of Philippians chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And I love this. And the peace of God, which transcends or which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Thank you for joining us today. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.